I do want to say, in light of what Peyton has done today, that um, this is not a concert, and uh, we're not all about entertainment here. So um, I thought we knew that, and uh, apparently we need to do some more work in that area. I don't think this is the first time I've, I've teased Peyton about solos here, but I actually appreciate it, and it was a blessing. So, uh, it, is a, it is a blessing just to rejoice in the presence of the Lord together with you guys. Blake, great to have you back with us uh, as well. I don't know where Blake is, but I saw him a second ago. Um, yeah, there you go. Um, let, me, let me say a word of prayer before we dive into our, our subject matter today. Thank you, Lord, for this privilege. Teach us your ways, and let every heart be open to you right now. In Jesus' name, amen. So we've been in Leviticus, and we've been talking uh, about, well, two weeks ago we talked about sexuality. It just comes up naturally, and uh, it's a big issue in our society. And uh, today we get to the step on homosexuality. I'll show you the passages in Leviticus in just a little bit. We're just going to talk about the subject more broadly today, and we're stepping into what is a hot topic, what is a controversial topic, but one that we need to discuss as a church family. If you're wondering why we need to discuss it, let me just tell you that this stuff hits closer to home than you sometimes realize. And uh, just to show you how close it can get, I've got a picture. Um, I, uh, I'm not sure what to do with this. Um, this came to me some time back, and um, still processing it, honestly. So, uh, and uh, we got Brad Johnson coming to speak at Celebrate Jesus this year, and man, I mean, I can handle Terry, but I don't know what to do with this. <laughs> There's a backstory to this picture, actually. Um, I'm just going to leave it up there for a while, just so everybody can sit with it while I, while I talk a minute. Uh, so, uh, there is an agenda in our world now to normalize homosexuality, homosexual behavior. Let me just say, I'm talking about homosexual activity. I'm not talking about the homosexual orientation. Uh, I don't believe that it is simple to uh, have homosexual desires or even have what you might call a homosexual orientation. We're talking about living it out and acting it out today. And I think the Bible speaks pretty clearly on this subject. And there's an agenda now in our society to normalize this, even to, to moral, uh, whatever you want to call it, moralize it, make it the, the moral high ground. And uh, we just have to talk seriously and honestly about, about the issue from a biblical perspective, from a theological perspective. Our society has been moving at warp speed with regard to this issue. In the early 2000s, the majority of Americans still opposed gay marriage. Now, 70% of Americans approve and only 22% will say that they oppose. This are, these are drastic, rapid changes that have been happening. And uh, it's, being, it's really being forced upon us. And I know this as a parent because it's all over television shows, even cartoons. We try to let our girls watch cartoons. And they're slipping this stuff in right and left in the cartoons that are otherwise uh, wholesome. And yet it's almost inescapable. Our, our children are going to be faced with this, faced with it in a way that doesn't just say people are doing it, but saying this is good and it's right and people should do it. And frankly, guys, I'm tired of it. As a parent, I'm tired of it. But I, I want to say this right after I say that. I'll, I'll go ahead and get, take this picture off. Um, 
we need to pause before we get into anything else about this and, and remember that as Christians, we are always called to compassion. And compassion is at the heart of Christian ethics because that's who Jesus was. He was a person of compa compassion. And sometimes when you run in conservative circles and talk about this issue, maybe for a variety of reasons, I don't know that I understand it all, but you find that compassion is lacking. I think some of that is related to the fact that, that when, when we're angry, we're angry sort of at the political machine, the social machine that's running over us and, and pushing it upon us. That's what I'm tired of, is, is having it just forced, forced upon us on, on our televisions and every, every corner of society. And that, that can be part of it. Part of it's just something that if, if you're heterosexual and you never have had a, a feeling or a thought like that, and you've always grown up with that being so other, you don't understand it, you don't understand how anybody could ever have those feelings, and so it's just gross and nasty, and you just you naturally are, are harsh towards it and, and, and have a condemning spirit towards it. And, and at all times, whatever our reasons are, we have to come back to actual people. And we have to remember that we worship and serve the one who was criticized and condemned for being a friend of sinners. And we can never forget that. Jesus hung out with people he wasn't supposed to hang out with. And Jesus showed love to people who were sinners. Prostitutes. And the tax collectors. And the people who were disreputable in society. He loved them. And I want to say to you today, I know this does touch close to home. For a number of you. Family members and close friends. And I want to tell you, as a Christian, your first job is to love them. And that's going to work, at, work itself out differently. I know each individual situation has to be handled with uh, wisdom and trying to understand what's the best thing to do in a given situation. But our first obligation is to love them. That's what Jesus did. And so that's what we do. We don't live lives walking around seeing who we can condemn and how fast we can condemn them. In fact, we leave judgment up to God. We don't know the road that people have traveled, the challenges they have faced, the internal and external factors that have contributed to them being who they are, thinking what they think. I, I take hands off when it comes to judgment, and I say it's God's. My calling is to love and to show compassion. But as we do that, we don't compromise. And I would argue that it is not compassionate for the generations of people who are going to come in this world, for people alive right now and those to come, it is not compassionate to compromise what God has put in this world for the good of humanity. God has set things up in a way to bless the world so that the world can function well. And if we neglect those things, we end up doing harm to it. It may not be the one we're looking at right there, but we may be harming many, many, many more people down the road because we've neglected to care about what God has revealed to us, to care about the world functioning the way God created it to function. But as we care and as we stand, we do not forget the people who struggle. And I realize there are different people who have different reasons for why they are as they are. As far as I know, they have not yet discovered a genetic basis for homosexuality. And I'm sure that's not for a lack of trying. But that really, that, that argument doesn't make a big difference to me. I know people say, well, it's, it's, uh, if you could prove it's genetic, then that just means it's natural, and that means that God couldn't be against it. Uh, honestly, it, it doesn't matter to me either way, because there are all kinds of things we face in our lives that we may have genetic predispositions towards that we're called not to act out on. And conversely, 
the people who may not have a genetic basis for their homosexuality, many times they're in positions where they don't feel like they can do anything about it from a desire standpoint. I'm not talking about from an activity standpoint, from a desire standpoint, from an orientation standpoint. Whatever it is, whether it's a, a wound in their home, some kind of abuse, whatever has caused it, internal, external factors, they feel like there's nothing they can do about it. And we can't forget that those are real people who are hurting. And there are children who cry themselves to sleep, begging God that they could be different. And contemplating suicide. And parents recovering from the suicides of children who have faced these things. And if we ignore those kind of things in our rush to condemn, we lose our witness to the people around us we would like to impact. Because they see that. And we need to see it too because we're the people of Jesus. So we recognize that and we deal compassionately with the people who struggle. It's going to look different in different situations. If we had more time, we could talk more about what exactly to do in various situations. By the way, we'll probably have a follow-up class or two on this. We'll try to announce in coming weeks. I want to say this also at the outset to any of you here. Uh, you may have struggled with homosexual feelings or desires. Um, you're not filthy. You're not unworthy of love. You're not somehow more degraded than everybody else in the world around you, okay? Human beings are sinners. And we have struggles with sin. And that may be yours. You are not unworthy. You're certainly not unworthy of the love of God. And uh, I want you to know, just from my, my own personal standpoint, you are welcome to talk to me, and you will be safe. And I know there are others in here who would say the same thing to you. Having said all of that, we need to say that compassion does not mean that we abandon our concern for moral truth. And if we do so, we will do harm to ourselves, to our society, to people around us in the long term. So let's go back to where we left off last time and just remember that our world is sexually messed up. And there's a long history to this. The primary, I guess the, uh, the major target nowadays that you can find, the easy target, is transgenderism. I looked up online a, a women's health article, and uh, they named off 14 different possibilities for gender now. But uh, that wasn't all. In fact, I'll quote the, the article to you, if I can find it here. Uh, yeah, it, it, towards the end of the article it says, but, you know, it names off these 14. It says, but there is no finite number of gender identities. <laughs> Translation, there are an infinite number of gender identities. And they list off things like transgender, pangender, omnigender, those are different things. Cisgender, that's what I am, found myself. <laughs> um, that's if, you're, if your gender corresponds to your biological sex. Um, gender fluid, gender void, ah gender, on and on it goes. This is what you find. And, and frankly, guys, this is absurd. And if we're thinking in our right minds, we know this is absurd. And it's frustrating to me because it's passed off in society 
as the stuff of intellectuals, as if it's smart. And, and good common sense among people will tell us this is not right. Something is messed up with this. And we're at a place in our society where this kind of stuff is becoming unsustainable. And I'm thankful for that. I, now you have atheists who are speaking out publicly, uh, not, not conservative Christians by any means, saying uh, something's messed up with this, guys. And we've run into a place where we've realized progress has its limits. Progress has its limits. So you've got to choose now between whether you're going to support women's rights or transgender rights. Right? Those, are, those are the kind of things we're running up against in society now. As we follow this logic out to as far as we can take it, it will collapse in on itself. It is not sustainable. It is built on a fundamental illogic. It's not the way the world works. But we got to get to the root of the problem. And... Uh, the problem doesn't begin with transgenderism. The problem begins with many, many, many of us in the church and outside of the church accepting a sub-biblical view of human sexuality and rejecting God's revelation concerning sexuality in the human family. And that, that is the core of our problem. The problem goes back to the sexual revolution. Actually, we've had more than one sexual revolution, but I'm thinking particularly of the one 1960s, 1970s. You know, the Beatles and everybody else around that time throwing off sexual restraint, saying we're free, we're not going to live by these rigid sexual rules anymore. People can sleep with who they want to sleep with. People can live with who they want to live with. And we have technology that now enables us to do that without the consequences. And we have all kinds of, way, all kinds of ways to avoid pregnancy, which is, in normal society, the outcome of this kind of sexual activity. So uh, we're living in this tiny little window of history now where technology has arrived to make things possible that have never been possible before. And this has its roots, and we could talk longer about this in, in our society's press for freedom. And it goes back to a good thing in a lot of ways, a, a social political freedom, of freedom from tyranny and that kind of thing, but it's been bequeathed to us today as a freedom of the individual to do whatever he or she wants to do. It's a self-creative freedom. Freedom from tyranny of the external authority of the government, of the church, or whatever has become freedom from tyranny, even of human nature itself. Now the official position in our society today is there is no such thing as a human nature. Do you know that? Because nature's will limit what we can do, what we can choose to be. And primarily, uh, this is going to uh, be seen in the way we think about sexuality. By the way, I feel like I could just, I, this is terrible preaching if I do it. I feel like I should give a bibliography for this talk. <laughs> if I were writing this out on, on, on paper, I would, I would give you all sources. So no, this isn't coming from me. But uh, if you want to see, I'm drawing right now, when I'm talking about this nature thing, I'm drawing on what Dallas Willard says in his uh, his talk uh, on, on YouTube, you can find it very easily. The second talk on the, the divine conspiracy. Check it out. It'll do you more good than anything I say today. Uh, I, I, like I said, I could mention multiple other uh, sources here. Just know that this is not me. I'm giving you what a lot of other people say. Uh, so this freedom thing that comes to us, throw off our sexual restraint, that's where it starts. We can do what we want to and nobody should tell us what to do. It's my business, not yours. I can have sex with who I want to, when I want to. You stay out of it, that kind of thing. That's our first thing that we start with there. That comes on down the line to us. And, well, man with man, woman with woman, 
I can't even be free to choose my gender. I can choose. You can't tell me. I don't, there's no such thing as a human nature. I can create myself. We can do what we want to, as long as it's consensual. And once again, the problem is a deeper problem. It's a rejection. It's, it's a rejection of God being able to tell us what's good for human beings, what's good for human society. You have the sexual revolution, but let me say to you, the sexual revolution depends upon a revolution in the understanding of the human person, of the human self. And that's what we're talking about, where, where people have said now, going back at least to the Enlightenment, saying there's no such thing as a human nature. Because that nature will limit the kind of things you can do. That's a microphone there. I can't throw it like a baseball. It has a nature, all right? If I have a human nature that's made a certain way, there are some things I can do and some things I can't do. And one of the fundamental revolutions that's taken place is uh, we've rejected the Judeo-Christian understanding of the body. The Judeo-Christian tradition says that God speaks to us through our bodies. We know things about ourselves. We know things about who we are because of the body God has given us. Now that understanding is disregarded. And we don't need the body to help us know who we are. We don't need the body to help us know what we can do. And this is where the confusion uh, becomes rampant. If your body doesn't speak, then you speak. Some internal you, whatever that is, separate from your body with infinite possibilities to say, this is who I am. You may have heard about the lady who said she identified as a cat, underwent 20 different surgeries. And she said, I identify as a cat, trying to make herself look like a cat. Well, why not? If your body doesn't get to speak, if God can't tell you anything through your body, it's just you on the inside with your desires, your feelings, your orientation. That's all there is to Jesus. Why can't you just create? We went to a uh, funeral in, Af uh, in, uh, in uh, Los Angeles, an African-American funeral in Los Angeles years ago. We went to an African-American church uh, in the inner city of Los Angeles when we lived out there. We went to a funeral, and uh, Olivia, I still remember after, you know, it's different. You guys know it's different in African-American funeral. People getting up and singing and, and sharing and, and doing different things. And we left there after all that uh, celebration. And Olivia said to me uh, as, as we left, I think my soul is black. Because um, right? she identified with that. Right? But now you see, if she said that, she was using it as an expression. As to say, I really, really like that. I, I, I would like to be a part of that. Right? But what, what if she tried to say, you know, I actually am black. <laughs> You know, this happened a while back. They found the, was it the leader of the NAACP who had been a white woman, but she had said she identified as black and got in big trouble. I, I should have looked this up before I started talking about it. I think this happened not, not long ago. Yeah. Uh, you can't do that, right? And we all know you can't. It's absurd. It's intuitively absurd. And yet we're at a place in society where we don't even know how to respond because we've told people they can do that with their sexuality. We've told them they can do it with their gender. We've told them you can create yourself. Why can't we do all kinds of other things? This has a history to it, a philosophical, social history. Uh, and we won't take a long time going into all this, but I do want to say just a few words about it. Uh, going back to the romantics of the 17th to 18th century, human identity took an inward term. Um, it's like a psychologizing of the, of the human self. And... That led eventually to people's inward desires being constitutive of who they are, separate from their external makeup. 
And now we live with what's been termed expressive individualism as the, the phrase that captures our society. What's most important about you is you expressing yourself, you doing what you want. That's where, where meaning and value, where, where traditional societies, they worked out who they were. Yes, internal desire played into it, but it was in, in connection with social groups, with families and, and broader social units, and you found who you were negotiating that reality with others. Now we say, no, nobody gets to tell you what to do. In fact, society's smothering. They make rules for you. They try to inhibit you. They try to hold you back. Nobody tells you what to do. You decide. As if there's some unsituated self that floats around, and it's full of pure goodness, and it's the loss of the doctrine of sin, side note. The self that's full of pure goodness, you just need to let it come out. And whatever's there, that's what will emerge. The most important thing about you is how you feel inside. You just need to express yourself, and you discover morality, and you discover meaning by looking within. Roger Scruton, a brilliant philosopher, he, uh, he says this is illustrated in dance. Uh, I've learned some about dancing in recent times because I've been to two weddings and uh, for the first time in my life I have danced <laughs> mainly with my wife and my daughters okay only with my wife and my daughter that probably should, should be clarified yeah uh, <laughs> and it comes out turns out it comes naturally to me I'm, I'm a natural uh, uh but Scruton says, if you look back at the way dances were done a while back, they had these, they learned moves, right? They learned the lines and the, uh, whatever it is, you know, they learned how to do it with other people, right? And you look at the way people dance today, you know what they do? They go out there and start just moving around, you know? That's how people dance today. He, he distinguishes between dancing with people, like it used to be done, and dancing at people, <laughs> Right? And it, it is reflecting, and, and not, not coincidentally has it become very sexual, too. Um, because it is us coming to disregard what we do together and say, let's do our own thing. Right? I'll express myself, and that's the most important thing I can do. There was a commercial when I was a kid that came out. Let's just pause and look at that one more time. Um, <laughs> And then we'll look at this commercial. Um, Kobe Bryant, Sprite commercial. I don't know if y'all ever saw that. Yeah. I think it's a profound cultural commentary. It's a Sprite commercial. But it's saying much more. It's drawing on cultural assumptions. Right? Things we assume to be true. Who are you going to listen to? How about yourself? Not your parents, not your church, not your society, not your nation, yourself. Obey your thirst. That could be the slogan for the sexual revolution. Obey your thirst. Do what you want to do and don't let anybody tell you otherwise. And I want to say this to you then, okay? And hear what I said. Don't forget what I said about compassion. I meant every word of it. But the sexual revolution did not begin with compassion. It began with human desire. Rejecting God and putting human beings in the seat of authority. And we're now downstream from that a ways. To the point where people don't even realize that their thoughts have been so colored by this move to unseat 
the Lord God and put the human being on the throne and put desires of human beings on the throne. This did not start with compassion. This started with human beings wanting to be in charge. Well, you get the internalizing of the self. With Sigmund Freud, you get sexuality becoming central to the self. And so not only, I mean, sex has always been a big deal for a long time, but, but with, with Freud, it became the key thing about you. And even though most of Freud's psychological theories have been discredited now, this lingering influence is in our world. Um, it is that you are a sexual being from the time you were born, and that's the most important thing about you. And you can't be happy unless you figure out how to unshackle yourself and be fulfilled sexually. So you get an internal move. The key to your happiness has nothing to do with your external. It has to do with your desires. And then you get the key desire you need to fulfill is your sexuality. Figure that out, and that's life right there. This is the heart of identity, and identity really is so central to uh, this discussion. Years ago, we had a family. I've told you about this family before. We had a, a, a couple come to our church, a family come to our church, and they were from the Northeast, a more liberal family. We sat with them, and they wanted to be a part of our church. We were talking through this issue, and they had strong feelings about it. And the lady kept saying to us about homosexual people, she said, but that's who they are. But that's who they are. But that's who they are. And I finally asked her, I said, what do you think makes a person who they are? And she paused, and she said, that's a good question. She hadn't thought it through. She was just assuming what she had absorbed from the world around her, that what's most central to you is your sexuality. And if that is the most central thing to you, then it is certainly repressive, it's certainly harmful, you're certainly doing something wrong if you tell somebody they can't live it out. And I want to say to you that sexuality is a part of who we are, but it is not the most important part of who we are. And as Christians, we have a very different message about this because we say there's one identity that transcends all other identities. It's in Christ. Christ is our identity. It transcends our race, our ethnicity, our sexuality. Everything is subjugated to Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. You're all one in Christ. That's our, that's our primary identity. Tim Keller has this uh, illustration he uses, uh, wrestling through eyes... Uh, uh, through issues like this. And uh, if you want to read some good stuff, check out his book, Making Sense of God. Uh, he says, imagine somebody many years ago uh, in another society, an ancient war society, like an Anglo-Saxon warrior. He says, and, and this person has inside himself competing desires. One is the desire to be aggressive and to fight and to harm people, especially if they deserve it, right? The other is same-sex attraction. And this ancient warrior feels both of these in the Anglo-Saxon world. You know what he's going to do in that world, Keller says? In that world, he's going to say, the aggression is a good thing. And I'm going to use that to become honorable in my society. And the same-sex attraction, I feel, I'm going to try to do something about that. I'm going to try to push, push that back and, and negotiate that in a way where it doesn't, doesn't cause a problem for me. Now, Taylor says, uh, uh, 
change the idea, change the illustration, the setting of it to Manhattan today. And you meet somebody on the street and they've got the same inner struggle, aggression and same-sex attraction. What's going to happen with that person? Depending on their context, but very possibly in that, in that culture, they're going to say, well, I want to get rid of this aggression. And, you know, the same-sex attraction, that's just who I am. And I think I, I might cultivate that and pursue it further. And Keller's point is not to say that sexuality has nothing to do with our identity or to say that sexuality uh, uh, is, is not an important part of us or anything like that. His point is to say that we're always negotiating internal struggles, internal desires based upon broader society, based upon the moral values that we have received from society and negotiated ourselves. We're always figuring out our identity based on that. So we can't just take these sexual feelings and say that's who I am to the exclusion of everything else and in a different society in, in, in most of the world history and, and frankly most of the world still today does not approve uh, of homosexual at least homosexual marriage you know. and in a in a different society we would just negotiate these things differently but what happens today is that we have lionized uh, coming out we have made it into a virtue to come out. And I heard a guy years ago talking about this. He visited my school and he said, imagine you have a spectrum. And on this spectrum, you have maybe normal, full-scale, I mean, I don't call it normal, but just really strong masculinity, really strong femininity, right? Maybe really strong straightness towards homosexuality on the other side. And he said, kids growing up experience confusion, right? Or they experience different desires and find themselves maybe somewhere on this, on this spectrum at, at certain times. Maybe they have a friend who pushes them to explore something. Maybe they just go through a time where they don't know, whatever. Well, what we do in our society is we tell them, as soon as we recognize that, or they may not hear it personally, they may see it on TV, whatever, what, what they find is they say, oh, that's who you really are. So you need to go over here and come out. And that's what you'd do if you were really noble. That's to be, that's to be brave. You'd be heroic if you would just go over there and come out. And so we end up with more and more people who could be helped. I guess I should say to go over there and come out, right? This, is, this was my heterosexual side. Um, you know, more and more people moving that direction. They're being pushed that way by a society that's saying, that's good. This is the way to be good. Whereas in reality, what we should be saying is this is not God's way. And encouraging people towards a different way of handling those kind of things. I'm not saying, by the way, that uh, you can as a rule, just cure people of homosexuality, okay? Don't misunderstand me. And that just, you say that and then they get rid of it. That's not, that's not what I'm saying. But there are different ways to handle it, okay? In some cases, people find themselves, where they do, they overcome it. In other cases, they may struggle with it all their lives. And they may have to, to learn to live a celibate lifestyle. There are different uh, strategies for dealing with, with things. But to say that this is the great virtue that you need to live into, that confuses people about what's morally true and what's morally good. And not just morally, but I hope you understand when I say that, I'm talking about what's good for life. Well, I'm going to have to speed along. I, uh, I wanted to say this as a point of logical inference before I look at the scriptures. Uh, If we accept 
this kind of definition of the human person, this definition of, of uh, what's good and, and this expressive individualist approach to things uh, as a justification for homosexuality, homosexual sex, and marriage, uh, there's really no way to stop this train, logically. So uh, there are people out there now who are arguing for uh, adult incest. And they're saying it should be approved. And you just have to ask the question, why not? If, if people consent, if they, if they do it in a way that, that doesn't create harm for others, why not incest? If that's what we desire. Why not uh, polyamory? Why not three, threes? You know, there, there are people living this way. Where, uh, not just a homosexual couple, but three homosexual. Polygamy would be, I guess, uh, a heterosexual uh, multiplicity. Why not those kinds of things? If we say, you know, I really feel like this is who I am. I really feel like this is what I want. They feel like it's what they want. What I'm, tr- what I'm trying to say to you is we're going to walk back from those things. We're going to need a different ground to walk on. Because the ground we've been walking on doesn't work. As a society, I mean. As a society, you cannot avoid some of those logical implications, and that's why people are already out there arguing for those kind of things. Okay. I know that's a lot by way of introduction, and I'm going to have to cut things uh, here in the Scripture. I think that, largely speaking, this, this church will know what the Bible says about this. The Bible is fairly clear, but I'm going to put some Scriptures up here. Uh, as far as I know, there are about six passages that speak directly to homosexuality in the Bible. And Leviticus is what has brought us here. In chapter 18 and in chapter 20, you shall not lie with a male as with a woman. Genesis 19, if you go back a little bit, is the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. And homosexuality is not the only bad thing going on there, but it's one of them. And there are men who want Lot to bring out to him the visitors so that they can have sex with them. And it's not a good thing. You get to the New Testament, and you get uh, Paul listing off a number of things that are antithetical to the kingdom of God. These people won't inherit the kingdom of God. Sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, men who practice homosexuality, thieves, greedy, etc. 1 Timothy 1 mentions again in a list of uh, sinful things those who practice homosexuality. And then uh, maybe the most famous passage is Romans 1. We read the first part of this passage, and this is what we didn't read right here. God gave them up, these people who wanted to live without knowledge of God. He gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women. And were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving themselves the due penalty for their error. Now people will say, if you look at the whole Bible, this is one of the arguments you'll come across, you look at the whole Bible, you only got six verses. That's not very much. Well, I I think that's true. It's not a lot. But you know what else the Bible doesn't say a lot about? Pedophilia bestiality. You can just go down the list of things that the Bible doesn't say a lot about. Incest. 
The truth, the truth is, I think the Bible's aiming at the target that's there. And if that's not the primary thing they're dealing with, you're not going to find a lot about it in the Bible. But it gives us plenty of, of vision of what's good and right to know how to deal with whatever else comes up. And the question is, do we have a positive vision by which to identify the negative? Do we have a standard by which we can identify counterfeits? And we do. For that, we have to go back to creation. And you know the creation story? It's about God bringing order. God brings order out of chaos. That's at least a part of that story. And so he separates light from darkness, day from night. And you, and you get order brought into our world. You get animals that are of a certain kind. They produce after their kind. Plants, and you plant certain seeds, and it gives you certain trees or, or vegetation. Right? God ordered our world so that it would be livable. Imagine if we went around in a world where, where suddenly, we didn't know when it was going to happen, and suddenly night fell. <laughs> Whoa! It's, it's 1 o'clock in the afternoon, and suddenly it's night. Oh, tomorrow it'll be, it'll be dark at, at 7 o'clock in the morning. You didn't, imagine the chaos that would produce to our lives, right? Imagine if we didn't know where the water stopped of the sea and land began. It was always changing. <laughs> if if uh, you planted a seed, but you didn't know what was going to grow up, you thought you were planting a peach tree, and suddenly you... You got uh, asparagus growing. <laughs> That'd be terrible. It's the worst you can imagine. <laughs> but God ordered our world. He separated things. He put things that belong together. And when he did that, the Bible says he created them male and female. And he said the two shall become one. It works physically. It works spiritually and emotionally. This is the way God made human society to work. It is the only relationship that has the possibility of creating larger kinship units. Frankly, guys, children need mothers and fathers. And it's not compassionate for children for us to act like God's design for the human family does not matter. And they need larger kinship units. They need, ideally, I know it doesn't always happen, but, but God's design is for there to be larger kinship units. They grandparents and aunts and uncles. And the human family is designed to, to produce that in our world. And when it's done well, it is a beautiful thing. That is what God wanted. And we cannot just cast that aside because it's become politically incorrect. And we cannot even cast it aside because we have great compassion for those who are hurting with their struggle with desires they don't want. We have to remember that God's way matters and that his will must be done for human beings and for human societies to flourish. And so we seek for that will to be done. And Jesus actually talks about this. People say Jesus didn't say anything about homosexuality. Well, I am sure Jesus would have loved homosexuals, guys, just like he loved the prostitutes. But when it came down to answering questions, he spoke pretty directly about what God wanted. And he said it matters what happened in the beginning. He said to people who weren't sure they wanted to get ma married, if they couldn't uh, divorce when they wanted to, he said, well, you need to know how God made things. He didn't say, well, I'm sorry, I know that's tough, do what you want to do. He said, no, God has a design for the world. Have you not read? He who created them from the beginning made them male and female. Jesus thought it mattered what God did in the beginning. And therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. 
Go down to verse 8. Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. It matters what God did in the beginning. Guys, um, I think I need to stop. And I have a lot more I could say. But I'm going to wrap up here because I'm going too long. Um, The last point I want to make to you is if you look at Romans 1, we already touched on some of it, is that uh, you'll see that this kind of behavior is related to the worship of God. Not just to homosexuality, okay, but, but right functioning in our thoughts and our hearts about sexuality and human behavior is related to worshiping God rightly, having God in his rightful place. Read Romans 1 and you'll see that. And that's really what we're about. We're about putting God in his right place. And what Paul says in that chapter is that, that people didn't want God to be God. And that is what we're facing today. Dress it up in other garments if you want to. You're always coming back to the same idea that people don't want God to be God. They would rather rule the world and have their desires rule the world. We would rather do that. And so Paul says their foolish hearts were darkened. They became confused in their thinking. That's what happens when we don't want God to be God. And so we have a situation today where millions, hundreds of millions of people are dying, have died, because, not just because of uh, homosexuality, I'm sure it's other sexual deviant practices as well. But, but uh, it's, this, is, this is just scientific fact. They're dying because of this practice. And if you say it publicly, it's hate speech. I mean, let me tell you something, I'm not trying to be political with this, all right? You guys know that I try to be fair. Um, if you've been around here long enough, you've heard me speak out against the wickedness of Donald Trump. I don't back away one inch from that. And I think it's an idolatry in the church that we can't say those kind of things. Um, we need to speak out about what's wrong wherever it's wrong. But we need to be able to be fair about this too. And because now sex has been politicized, we can't talk about it without it becoming something, oh, you're taking a political stand. I'm taking a stand for the kingdom of God. I want, I want God's will to be done on the earth. That's what I want. And I want the church to rise up and care more about that than they care about their political parties. I want the church to rise up and realize Jesus Christ is the rightful king of the world, and God is good. He had a good intention for his creation, and we can live into that. And yes, I would say to people, and here's where I'll finish up to you, with you today, We have to have a message for people still today that says the gospel is good. And yes, for a homosexual, knowing God is better than living a lifetime in a homosexual relationship. Knowing God is going to lead you to a happier life than a lifetime. Maybe maybe our problem is that in the church, we've become so nominal in our own faith that we don't experience things like that. St. Augustine can say, you have made me. You know, he lived his life in promiscuity promiscuity until he found God. And he said, you've made us for yourself. And the heart is restless till it finds its rest in you. That's what he knew. He had tried the path of sexual freedom. It didn't work. But this man was the real thing. He, He got in touch with the real God, and his life was different because of it. And the church needs to be full of people who know that. And then we say with compassion, look, we know your struggle is deep. And we don't come with you with condemnation. But we come to you with good news. <laughs> that in the kingdom of God, you find treasures that you don't know about outside of him. 
and you're invited in. We are better and our world is better because we embrace the gospel. And that's what we proclaim to people. All right, I'm going to stop there. Praise team, would you guys please come on up? And I, I just want to close this out in prayer. Lord, I thank you for your patience with us and the mercy you have upon us. And I thank you for your mercy towards those who struggle with homosexual desires. And I just want to pray for anybody in here. If this sermon has been heavy for them, I want to ask you to bless them. I'm going to ask you to remove guilt or shame from people's hearts. And let them be filled with joyful anticipation of good things that you have for them. And we pray it now in Jesus' name. Amen.